0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Boy, there's been a lot of discussion over the last little while about public transit here in the city of Hamilton. Obviously, LRT is the main focus of that discussion. But uh, as city staff start to grapple with the 2017 budget, one of the other concerns, of course, is how do you increase ridership? The uh, Rapid Ready Report talked about doing that. City councilors have been talking about doing that. Well, the numbers they got yesterday are not very encouraging. Apparently, there's uh, almost a flat line uh, and in some cases decreases ridership. And at the same time, of course, Council is looking at increasing bus fares, transit fares, to try to raise some of the revenue that's needed for that. It's a delicate balancing act. How are they going to approach it? Well, let's ask uh, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show, to address just that. Good morning, Sam. How are you doing today?
2: Good morning, Bill. I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Good. Uh, Interesting report. Uh, I I guess not a very encouraging report in some ways that you guys got yesterday. How do you grapple with these numbers?
2: Well, Firstly, I think it's important to, to recognize that there is a direct correlation between increasing the fares and a decrease in ridership. Um, and that's something that we need to incorporate into this debate. So I'm not surprised that the ridership decreased because we've always been uh, under, or no, we all, we've always known that by increasing fares, you're going to discourage those that are on the borderline between uh, being uh, uh, the working poor and simply relying on Ontario Works. So the issue really at present is. How do we address um, is the fact that our ridership is stagnant? How do we reinvest in HSR, particularly the area rating debate, in ensuring that we increase ridership and improve the service? Because there's also a direct correlation between a great service and, and an increase of ridership. If it's inconvenient to use the bus, as I mentioned at the at committee the other day, I have a constituent who works in Upper James. Uh, is actually takes Uber or a taxi rather than taking the bus because it doesn't go down the Claremont access. That's ridiculous. And that those are the types of issues that we need to assess through our rationalization of our service to ensure that we maximize the service in order to make it ready and reliable. And that's why the LRT is important. Uh, the LRT, once the BLAST system, which is citywide, is incorporated, it will be ready and reliable. At present, it isn't ready nor reliable. And as a result, it's discouraging people from using public transit and putting them into cars rather than buses.
1: To your point, nothing's going down the Claremont access these days. But that's another debate. We can get into that another time. Uh, yeah, that's just one example. No, I understand. Uh, I understand yeah. your point. But but Sam, you've been singing this song for the last number of years. And this report that you guys saw the other day indicates that it, it, staff is either not listening or they're not they're not doing the modifications to the transit program that are needed here.
2: Well, I think there's a, a lot to be said about, uh, well, frankly, we have a new general manager now and she and Debbie will be focused on trying to improve a lot of the areas in which we need to focus in on. But we have to have the adult conversations surrounding the area rating and whether or not this is a, a citywide um, priority or not. And the, the reality is we're limited with respect to the investment that we're putting into public transit. And as a direct result, we're seeing the outcome of that. And the outcome is poor, as the report indicates. So all of these variables need to be addressed. We need to make it a priority and fund it accordingly. It is it is funded uh, tens of millions of dollars in, in this operating budget and our capital budget. Uh, and we continue to, I think, in many ways, spin our wheels, no pun intended, uh, because we're not ready to make that real tough decision surrounding area rating. And I understand the sensitivity surrounding increases of taxes. But with the area, with the actual assessment growth uh, being higher in the inner city in the next now and within the next 10, 15, 20 years, I think it's a good time to actually look at the elimination of area rating as we phase in the increases of taxes in the inner city because our assessment growth is greater than that of the suburban area. So this is the time that perhaps uh, because we will be seeing decreases in the suburban area, that is a time to actually introduce uh, the area rating debate.
1: Because your council colleagues, at least many of them anyway, seem to be of the opinion that, uh, that obviously more money has to go into transit, and I think everybody agrees with that. But but it's, you can't do it by raising fares, because as you say, it's the marginalized who seem to be adversely affected, and if you make the system unaffordable un- and at the same time inconvenient, you this is the number you're going to get, right? It's not going to get any right. better.
2: And Hamilton's unique because Hamilton is not Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal, where you have uh, people uh, that are professionals, uh, urban professionals, using public transit to the same degree as those that are marginalized. In Hamilton, um, historically speaking, we've had a correlation between uh, public transit users and those that can't afford to purchase a car. And having been born and raised in Hamilton, there was a cultural issue about not it not being cruel to ride public transit. And uh, there, there's been this, this growing cultural uh, shift in the city, but not when it comes to public transit. And those that are born and raised here and are... Uh, nearly 50 years old as I am, know that it was never cool to use public transit. We need to change that culture. With the influx of new Hamiltonians coming in from either Europe or, or, or Toronto or elsewhere, uh, they, ha- they get it. They understand the sustainability issues of public transit, complete streets, cycling lanes, and how that really improves quality of life. Those that were born and raised here, I find it the biggest challenge in having them grasp those issues. Uh, but as you sit them down and explain to them uh, step by step, they get it after a while. It's the same people that don't go downtown, but yet criticize downtown, and they haven't been downtown in 20 years. Things have changed, but they need to be engaged in it, and they need to benefit in it. And uh, I tell you, the the upswing that we're getting in the inner city is quite phenomenal. When those that were born and raised, like myself and you as well, Bill, you you can recall that at one time, we were working to move out of the inner city. Now people are working to get in. Assessment growth is Stephen Roof, higher than that in uh, most parts of the mountain, to be frank, and um, things are moving in the right direction. We need now to invest along those lines of those people coming in demanding urban development and also those complete streets and public transit improvements because if we don't we're 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 missing a link that's vital to the sustainability of the city
1: but where are the uh, where's the money going to come from to do the improvements that you've been asking well, for sam
2: well again that's where the area rating debate comes into play uh, at present uh, only the Uh, Only areas that actually have the service are paying for it. It's no different than somebody that doesn't have a child not wanting to pay for education taxes. It's not sustainable. It's not universal. It's actually un-Canadian. But I can understand that for years, the tax increases and the burden in the suburban area were greater than that of the inner city. But we're seeing a reversal in that because of the assessment growth, as I mentioned earlier, in the inner city. So this is the time that we should uh, try to phase it in over a 10-year period uh, to try to mitigate the impact, but also... Uh, take advantage of of the assessment growth in the inner city, and and the assessments uh, that that's going to be remain kind of leveled off in the suburban area, which is going to mitigate their tax uh, burden.
1: Has do you have a template in mind? To make, I can remember back in the early days of, of amalgamation, uh, what city council in those days did, as you recall, was institute, uh, for instance, a business uh, tax. Uh, business reduction tax uh, that that really helps some of the inner city businesses uh, at the expense of taxes. And, and everybody bit the bullet on that to try to help the uh, the commercial element. Uh, can you convince your council colleagues that something along those lines is necessary for transit too?
2: Well, I think well, first on a business tax reduction program, I, I was never a subscriber of that. I actually voted against that. And, and I'm glad I did because it's actually shown that uh, businesses didn't stay and taxes only increase to the residential tax base so we really didn't get a net benefit uh, from fund that endeavor if anything we just we just burdened the, ta- the residential taxpayer more having said that I, I think that it can we can have a, a discussion with our suburban colleagues on a way of phasing it in during the period of time in which their average assessment growth is going to be below the city average which means that when we start our operating or our budget discussions they're in the minuses so if they're in the minuses and we incrementally incorporate uh the elimination of area rating it becomes revenue neutral for them and and that's really what we should be shooting for and what i plan on working towards
1: so but you've got to get nine votes to do that
2: yes and it's going to be it's not going to happen overnight and i understand that but i think we need staff to report back on ways of, of of meeting that objective. And um, I'll be working with Mike McGarrett, who I think is, is, is a magician when it comes to uh, numbers. He's, he's incredibly uh, competent. And if anyone can put together a formula that will mitigate the impact in the suburban area but increase revenue for public transit in the urban area, he's the man that can do it.
1: So with that in mind, though, how do you try to sell that to your council colleagues when they look at numbers like this? Uh, because there are some that are going to say, well, look, at this. this is a sinking ship right now. Why are we throwing money at it?
2: But that's the point, right? So, if we want to become sustainable, want to improve the service, we want it. Um, we want it to, to, to. We want it to prosper in the future. Then everyone needs to invest in it. And if we can all invest in it and mitigate the impacts in the suburban area, there's no reason why anybody would argue against it. So, uh, I think they need to recognize why there's a city benefit uh, to having public transit and how that plays a role in economic development, primarily, particularly in the industrial parks in the suburban area that at present have. Uh, terrible bus service or public transit service, uh, the fact that I have somebody in the East End that can't access Upper James via bus without going to Board Park first is, is a disgrace. In this day and age, it truly is a disgrace. So we we need to not only rationalize it, we need to eliminate the irrational components of our public transit system, which I think is speaking volumes right now, and also change the culture. And that's why the LRT, over and above the economic development and cultural shift and all the other benefits associated with it, it will make it cool, and also will open up access to those urban professionals that at present will not get on the B line because, frankly, buses are flying by them, and second because they're too full. And secondly, when they do get on, they're either standing or they're 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 sitting there like sardines. We, we need to have an environment that's no different than the TTC in the subway, where where professionals in all walks of life feel comfortable on public transit. At present, our public transit system is a system that primarily is built for those that can't afford a car, and for that reason, we're seeing the abysmal uh, the, the, the numbers.
1: Can you, if you defi- decide that, that area rating and, and that debate is, is, is the way to go here, and if you can convince your colleagues to do the same thing, can you attain the sorts of numbers that, for instance, the Rapid Ready yeah. Report is talking about? Because they're, they're calling for significant uh, investments into public transit here, Sam, to try to alleviate some of the concerns you've just raised.
2: That literally is the magic bullet, though, Bill. If you look at the numbers and you speak to staff, our finance staff, uh, clearly, if we eliminate area rating on um, public transit, uh, it will not only mitigate the general levy component, which is growing uh, because obviously as, as ridership decreases, someone's going to pay for it. So it's either through the user, which decreases ridership and then impacts more the general levy. So at present, we always strive to get a 50-50, 50% funded by the general levy, 50% funded by the fare box. At present, the general levy is carrying more than the fare box. So it actually hurts everybody collectively when people stop riding uh, the bus, so it's in their best interest to invest in any system that will increase ridership.
1: Would you consider something as drastic as reducing the the bus fares to try to attract more or more people well, on?
2: As you know, Bill, I at one time uh, argued that uh, perhaps bus fare or buses should be should be free, um, and I actually brought forward a motion accordingly, unsuccessful, but did bring it forward, and I I believe that no different than somebody that's driving on the road without a toll system, why are we why are we allowing people, particularly those that are most marginalized, paying their taxes through their either rent or, or mortgage, and then also being subjected to a user fee, which is a double taxation? If you're going to be fair, cars can travel freely throughout the city without any tolls, which I don't support, never have, except if they're from out of town, then I would, I would focus in on trying to create a system that uh, opens up uh, the ridership, and free transit would do that.
1: So for the, the 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 people that are listening to this show right now, Sam from from Flamborough, from Ancaster, from from Glanbrook, out in those areas, and 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 I guess the the far eastern reaches of Stony Creek, what do you say to them when they say, "Hey, I'm not going to pay for something. I'm not going to get don't you know, don't give me this area rating argument. Uh, we don't get transit. We shouldn't be supporting it to the same extent. Somebody should be, a, for instance, in Councillor Marula's ward. What, what do you say to them?
2: There are, there are a number of services that the agricultural or the suburban area gets that that we in the East Hamilton get, or the older city of Hamilton, that, and we're paying towards it. Uh, there are a lot of services in, in uh, Sudbury that uh, we all collectively, as Ontarians, are paying for, but we, we don't actually get the service for it. There, and you can say that nationally. You can say that for anything. As I mentioned, you have your education tax or, or, or universal Medicare. At the end of the day, we are one city. We are one residence. We should all be focusing on, firstly, determining what a presenting problem is, putting forward a solution, and then funding it universally, so that we're all part of a solution, as opposed to just turning a blind eye to a problem that impacts one sector of our family, that being a city, and 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 just turning a blind eye to it. That's a very young Canadian.
1: It's uh, it's an interesting discussion point. Uh, if if you wanted to group transit, and and you know p- movement of people into the same category as something like education, in other words, it's everybody's responsibility, as opposed to a user pay system. That's that's an interesting uh, philosophical discussion. Are we ready to have it here?
2: Uh, and we did. and uh, the, the motion failed, but we, didn't, we did move the art to some degree. We provided free uh, transit for seniors, and we did open up uh, — because of that, we opened up the discussion surrounding free transit for the marginalized. Um, so it, it, it did serve a purpose, but it didn't get the 100 percent support that I, I was looking for. but again, the art sticks were moved. But again, we're, we're either going to deal with the issue or we're going to avoid and ignore the issue and put our head in the sand. We're going to have to deal with this sooner or later. And a lot of these issues that can be dealt with simply without mitigating a lot of the impacts, especially now because the assessment growth in the inner city is so much greater than that of the suburban area. This is the time to talk about the elimination of area rating.
1: be interesting to see what your colleagues say about this. Sam, thanks for the time. I greatly appreciate it today.
2: My pleasure. Take care, Bill. You Oh, by too. the way, Bill, yeah. Bill, I just want to announce that on Kenworth Avenue North, We have, uh, we've dressed it up for Christmas with wreaths and lights for the first time in decades. So I encourage everyone to go down to the Kenworth
1: Avenue North uh, uh, business.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML. Interesting uh, meeting of public works at City Hall yesterday, and uh, the public works department's talking about perhaps using laneway homes as a possible housing solution. Now, we've known. For some months now that uh, the city, well years I suppose really, the city is very concerned about affordable housing and the lack of affordable housing and the housing stock here in the city. Is this a possible solution? Uh, Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins has been following this file for a long time. He's been on the program before talking about the problems and uh, we want to get him on here to talk about the possible solutions on this too. So we welcome Chad Collins back to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Good morning Chad, how are you today?
3: I'm doing well, Bill. Good morning.
1: Uh, you and I have talked a number of times now about the lack of housing stock and, the, and of course, the condition of some of the housing stock. Uh, this is uh, outside-the-box thinking. I don't know that too many people even thought of these laneway homes before.
3: Well, and, I, and I've lived in the city my entire life, and uh, I was completely unaware of the fact that we had a, a small inventory of homes that are built on some of Hamilton's laneways and public alleys. And really, they date back to you know the late 1800s, they're in many cases they were accessory units to some of the homes and some of the buildings that were constructed during that time many of them are carriage houses or or carriage buildings that were converted into homes some of them were uh, garages and accessory buildings that have since been converted and and people have lived in those those structures and those units for uh, well over a century now and and so it was some time ago that we commissioned a study on laneway housing just to find out the inventory where they're located um, you know, the, the some of the problems that we may have encountered over time with Langley housing. And so the, the study was con- conducted by um, or compiled for the city by prominent local architect Bill Curran, his firm. And it provides a fascinating look at uh, really a different uh, time uh, in Hamilton when, um, you know, it was basically horse and buggy, uh, certainly no automobiles uh, during those days. And, um, and these buildings have been since converted into residential homes and so the study is a fascinating look at a, a different time uh, in Hamilton, a different uh, uh, period of time in our history, and it provides a look at h- how people are using those older buildings today as residential homes.
1: Seventy of them in stock are there, are in, right now. Um, what can, right. kind of condition are they in right now? Do you know, Chad?
3: They're all in very well condition, so they you know they would certainly meet property standards uh, test for most of them, um, and, and they're located primarily in the lower city, Uh, from Wards 1 all the way through to Wards 4, we have 100 kilometres of alleyways and and laneways in the city. So I was fascinated to see that number as well. And the report goes on to talk about, you know, some of the opportunities that exist, certainly taking advantage of um, older parts of the city where we have uh, water and sewer already in the ground. There's certainly been a provincial push for intensification, and so there's a lot of um, push both at the local and provincial level to build within our boundaries rather than on farm fields. And so there's certainly the concept of taking advantage of laneways in that regard. And then of course, there's the whole issue of, um, you know, of taking advantage of the existing building stock uh, in, in those established neighborhoods. Some of the challenges though, that are raised in the report are the fact that some of the laneways are not serviced by sewer and water. So where we do not see some of these buildings used for residential uses, um, you know, we are without services most of these areas are inaccessible by vehicle so you start to think about the issues related to emergency vehicles accessing these properties when needed and then there's the whole issue of character of neighborhoods i think there would be a lot of neighborhoods would be concerned if they found out that people were chopping up their backyards along an alleyway for the purposes of introducing new residential homes so the report in itself, it, it, it gives us sort of the, the um, lay of the land currently in terms of where we're at with laneway housing. The inventory is 70, as you mentioned, and it talks about opportunities on a go-forward basis. And, and really the, the report points to um, studying it further. But at a high level, Bill, it, it really speaks to the whole issue of, of intensification and making better use of some of the properties that we have today. And so we just uh, passed a report at our last planning meeting that looks at reuse, reusing um, some of our underperforming uh, parking lots in the city as possible affordable housing sites, and, and that passed Council, and, and we'll be looking at five or six of those properties in the upcoming months to, to find out whether they can accommodate um, new residential units. So it's making better use of properties in Hamilton, of course, this is all in the context of Hamilton being one of the hottest real estate markets in the country. Um, Those real estate prices are making it increasingly more difficult for affordable housing providers to find new opportunities to build new units, to get at the 6,000-plus families or individuals who are on the current wait list. And so it's really trying to think outside the box and, and find opportunities to make those units happen sooner rather than later.
1: Back to the uh, to the housing for just a second about this because I I agree I mean we have to look at this big picture but and and this isn't going to be the the, the silver bullet that's going to fix everything it might be part right. of the solution but it's certainly not going to be the solution to this uh, you mentioned about zoning issues and I know the report talked a little bit about that and they they suggested that zoning could be a problem now are they talking about the existing units or if if you were to at some point decide that maybe we're going to build more of these things
3: the report points to if you're going to build more you will run into some planning issues so currently those that are being used for housing purposes would fit into the legal non-conforming category and that's covered in the report uh, if we're looking at building new units along laneways or alleyways that you know the problem you run into is that you probably don't have enough um, uh, room for side yard setbacks that are required front yards that are required under current zoning rear yards that are required under the zoning i mean you know I represent the beach community and I have a lot of historical homes cottages essentially that have been converted into homes over the years and they certainly do not mit, uh, they do not uh, fit today's standards from a planning perspective. Many of them are built right to the lot line. Uh, many of them do not have front front yards. Many of them do not have parking spaces so there is a parking requirement in many areas of the city today for residential uses.
1: So how did you get around that? Are those just non-conforming?
3: They would be non-conforming, so they would have been constructed, you know, prior to the days of the subdivisions that we have on on file today, and they would have been built at a time when there were no standards, where there were no requirements for side yards or swales or parking requirements, and they become over time legal non-conforming. Today's standards are much different. Of course, we take into everything into account, including drainage and everything else. And so, when you're trying to now build a small structure on a small piece of property. You run into you know you run into barriers as it relates to conforming with today's planning codes and planning standards because you just don't have the room to provide many of the requirements that would be required in a modern subdivision, and and that's the dilemma we run into when we look at trying to build uh, small properties on remnant lots.
1: What about servicing, and, and I don't just mean with the you know the water, etc., but I'm talking about garbage collection, uh, snow clearing, and things of that nature. Is it, these are by definition laneways. I mean, some people might call them alleyways. I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, depending on which area of the town in which you're living. But are are, are they serviceable? I mean, can, can trucks get up and down there? Or can can they get those sort of services that they would if they were on a, a regular street?
3: Yeah, some of them are built today. We do have um, you know. There's a difference between public assumed and public unassumed. The assumed alleys have some level of service. Some alleys uh, have a garbage collection where we have the garbage trucks actually run up the properties and collect from the rear of the property. That happens in the downtown core, of course. The unassumed are basically those that have been left. The residents are left to clear the garbage, cut the weeds. There's no public ownership attached to them. And so they kind of fall into this gray area. They're not owned privately and they're they're not owned by by, uh, the city of Hamilton. And so there's There's that whole issue, and the report speaks to coming forward with the need for a report that that seeks to address the inventory that we have between unassumed and assumed alleyways, because as you travel across the city, and as we realize that we have 100 kilometers worth of alleyways or laneways in the city, you realize that it's a real dog's breakfast as it relates to maintenance. So if you're encouraging new residential units along laneways or along alleyways, you'd certainly need to sort that out. You know, how is the snow clearing provided? How is waste collected if it's not being collected on that laneway currently? Who's filling the potholes? Who's maintaining the road when it needs to be repaired? In some cases, these laneways and alleyways are not paved. They are essentially gravel or dirt roads that have been left since the mid to late 1800s, and they've functioned um, in a way that has suited the neighbourhood, and they're all different. The downtown alleyways, in some cases, are a lot more formal than those that you would find in a quiet residential neighborhood in the East End.
1: Is that going to be a, a significant increase in, in servicing costs, though? I mean, you know, you're at Public Works yesterday where this report was was delivered. Uh, things like garbage collection, etc. I mean, if they're going to have to go down those laneways, is that going to is that going to be cost effective? Is that a cost effective way to do that, or would the increase uh, be minimal?
3: Well, they don't get into cost yet, and I think they highlight the issues that you're raising in terms of safety issues. And and, snow clearing, et cetera, You know, is it it even possible to provide those services? And that's why the report speaks to further study. It suggests that if we're we're going down this road, and the province certainly is at a high level as it relates to planning principles in terms of intensification, making better use of urban land, um, if we're going down that road and, and we're even going to look at laneway housing, uh, we we've, we need to study how those laneways are serviced and uh, and ownership and, and how they're accessed. And so currently we have a number of people who would use those laneways to access their rear yards. In many cases, people are accessing garages in the rear of their property. And so if you're now introducing new residential uses, how are the existing land uses affected by it? So it, the recommendations essentially, again, say this needs further study if Hamilton wants to go down that road. And at this point, it's really just a summary of the of the study that was undertaken by Mr. Curran and his staff.
1: With your time on council, though, Chad, what's, what's your comfort level with the possibility, and it's only a possibility because like you say, this is just a, an idea at this stage, mm-hmm. uh, of, of landowners subdividing their their lots, which are in many cases, especially in the inner city, are not that big to begin with. Uh, to try to take advantage of this. I mean, from a financial standpoint, I'm thinking, hey, I just heard Collins talking about this. You know what, I could take the last 25 feet, 30 feet off my backyard. I could get somebody, you know, build a house there and bingo. I'm I'm a landlord all of a sudden.
3: I think at a high level, Bill, our concern would be the character of existing neighborhoods. Yeah. I'm starting to see this on the beach strip where, in fact, I have a, a, a petition that's out into the neighborhood right now for a, a gentleman who's come from the Toronto area. He's purchased a very large home on the beach. And he's proposing to tear it down and subdivide it now into six, uh, uh, three uh, uh, condo um, apartments on, on uh, two portions of the property. And so the neighbors are certainly up in arms and rightfully so. Uh, the lot was originally uh, um, to accommodate a single family home. And uh, this investor, this developer has come into the city, you know, trying to change the landscape of the neighborhood. And their concern is certainly that there's a historic feel on the beach strip. Um, the landscape is such that there are certain areas in the neighbourhood that are designated for multi-residential. This is not one of them. So it speaks to character. And, and when you start subdividing up neighbourhoods um, into blocks and you start to squeeze in some cases and really push the envelope on our planning policies, you run into certainly resistance. And you, you run into the fact that, you, you know, there, there is something certainly within our official plan that speaks to maintaining the character of neighbourhoods. So these ones in the laneway report that are referenced, the 70, they fit in quite nicely because they were accessory buildings for the most part for structures that still exist that were built in the late 1800s. They blend right in nicely. The bricks, the facades all match the the home or homes that are in the area. I think if we travel down the road of looking at just trying to squeeze in as many homes as we can into some of the mature lots we have in the city, Um, I think we're going to run into problems. And so it needs to be done in consultation, certainly first and foremost with the neighbours. Is it something that they're willing to entertain? If it's not, then we we look elsewhere. But at a very high level, it speaks to the whole issue of, of looking at using lands where there may be an opportunity for intensification. And we clearly have examples of that across the city. We have a lot of underperforming, small little postage stamp type Uh, parking lots in the city that could easily be converted into uh, new units, whether they be three, four-story structures accommodating people, whether they're in affordable housing units or people who are just looking to rent uh, an apartment or own a small condominium. So those opportunities exist, and in my mind, that's the best opportunity we have to provide new units in the city.
1: I, I just think that if they go down this way here with, you know, suggesting, hey, maybe we can build some more of these kind of units, these laneway homes, uh, the unintended consequence of that could actually be that you're going to get a big pushback from a lot of the neighborhoods saying we don't want Absolutely. that sort of stuff around here.
3: Absolutely, and rightfully so. And and the report highlights the fact that character is a big issue as it relates to introducing new laneway housing. But it but it, again, back to the principles of just making better use of the lands that we have available to us today, I think gone are the days, Bill, of the subdivisions with 100 by 40 foot lots. You know, we're starting to see everything from here to Toronto. You know, we're starting to see a housing stock. Some of it, in my mind, certainly not palatable, but you're starting to see a different kind of housing stock in terms of um, smaller uh, uh, residential units on smaller lots with smaller um, lot lines between the two, smaller distances between houses. So it's... It's something that we're seeing um, with the rising uh, housing prices and land sales. uh, It's just it was bound to happen. Uh, We're we're now seeing that migration of Toronto into the Hamilton market, and um, and the housing stock that's being built today is is reflective of
1: those prices. Isn't that, and we've talked about this uh, many times on this program, I mean, when you buy real estate these days, I mean, they they say the cost of a house in Hamilton, it's really the cost of the land. I mean, the the, the Mm -hmm. cost of the house is really not nearly as much as the cost of the land itself. So is it time to revisit uh, zoning issues and things of that nature and the the codes that the the city uses here when it comes to building affordable housing?
3: We are going through that, and we have modified our official plan and all our zoning and planning policies related to affordable housing. So we are starting to, to waive some of the requirements associated with, um, with, with the plans that have been put forward. Um, we've reduced fees to encourage affordable housing providers to build more units. We're trying to make it less expensive rather than more expensive. Uh, but, it, you know, it's still, it, it, they're still hurting as it relates to competing with the private sector. And, um, and, and so that, that, that issue isn't going away. It really is an affordability issue for many. And the, the more that land prices um, go up here in Hamilton, the more difficult it is for not just city housing Hamilton, but the other 20 or 30 housing providers in the city
1: to provide new units. I, I mean, this is a wonderful report, and it's a nice idea, and it's it, it, an eye-opener to understand that these sorts mm-hmm. of things going on, but I, I can't see that there's going to be any rush to, for people to jump on board and say, hey, I want to do these things. I, I, I tend to think your other solution about looking at some of the uh, underperforming lands around here that the city owns and, and using those as potential sites probably is a much more effective way to attack the problem.
3: Yeah, exactly, and, and I, think it's, it, I think it highlights the fact that there are ways and means in which we can use lands within the urban area for affordable housing, lands that um, are currently within existing neighborhoods that remnant properties, my my comment would be that they may not just solely be along our laneways and alleyways. And and, I, and if nothing else, this is a fascinating look at Hamilton's history and the fact that we have people living in his, her, historical or heritage buildings uh, in circumstances or in situations that are a lot different than you and I would be if we're just in the smack dab in the middle of a... residential neighborhood uh, somewhere else you're listening to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900
0: chml
1: we've heard on this program of course so many stories from people our listeners who are dealing with this some of them not very well simply because of the predicament in which they find themselves and uh, global of course has done an outstanding job of following through on this story and uh, there was a report issued just the other day that we want to talk about right now because Hydro One has now responded to this. It's uh, Because of all the pressure that's gone on, there's there's the element, obviously, of, of the government and their responsibility here. And we've tried to get in touch with the energy minister uh, with no luck so far and the premier to talk about this, uh, we, again, with no luck so far. But what about Hydro One, the body that is supposed to be in charge of this? Well, now, Hydro One is suggesting and telling us that they are undertaking a case-by-case review of customers living without electricity because of the global news investigative reporting that's been going on over the last while. There are thousands of Ontario families that are in this predicament right now and these are people that simply can't afford to pay their bills. Here's a small segment of that global report.
4: We'd fallen behind on a mortgage, we'd fallen behind on everything else. And I just said, we can't pay it.
1: It is a shed light on the
3: need for my team to look at this further and to look at our policies on disconnections. We said, let's uh, institute the moratorium one week earlier is the right and
4: fair thing to do. And the kids started yelling, the lights are on, the lights are on. Mom, look, the lights are on.
1: That is uh, Carol, uh, which is a pseudonym that's used because uh, Global TV had agreed to uh, maintain her anonymity. Uh, and my, it was Mike Dorley that did the report, of course, for Global National. And Mike joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Mike. How are you today?
0: Pretty good. How are you doing today, Bill?
1: Great. So, uh, thank you so much for the time. And also with us is Carol. Carol, thank you for joining us on the program today.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Great. Mike, if I could start with you. Uh, We've been following this for months now. The reports that you and Sherry Engel and others at Global have been doing about these. uh, And and as a journalist, as a broadcast journalist, obviously, uh, as you try to uncover all of these facts, I mean, you try to remain, I suppose, as objective as you can. But when you hear Carol's story, uh, you can't help but get involved in this and and have that, that... tremendous empathy and, and 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 caring about the sorts of things that are going on i mean these are these are human stories here
0: well we get a lot of emails and we get a lot of calls from people uh who are who are down in the dumps who are who have who have lost their power who are in bad situations but there was something about that Carol's story that really touched us and and we i went out to meet her a couple of weeks ago and and you know i interviewed her and to be honest with you, I mean, I, I like to joke that I have I've had my tear ducts removed because, you know, I don't let things affect me. And, you know, I was almost in tears talking to her. And, uh, you know, I gave her a hug at the end of this interview because it, it was such a tragic story, and it brought so much outrage to me that I had to, like, I had to present it in such a way that, you know, that would hopefully outrage everyone else. And, and you know, the saddest thing about it is, you know, in TV we get, you know, a couple of minutes to tell a story. Her story is so crazy. And, and there's so many horrible things that happened to her and her family that I had to leave stuff out. It was, there was just way too much. Her neighbors actually called CAS on her. She's a lovely mother, and her kids are, are, are clean, they're fed, they're smart, they're educated, and, the, and her, her nasty neighbors called CAS on her. I mean, that's just one of the little things. Hydro actually sent her a note, um, a letter saying, if you do not reconnect your, your Hydro, and she'd been without power for almost six months, then we are going to actually take the, the, the uh, wires off your house, and then when you do finally get to repay it, then you're going to have to pay to reconnect. I mean, that's just mean. That's just not – it's, 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 that goes beyond the pale. So her story resonated with people, and in part because she comes – she's an average middle-class Ontarian. Her husband makes good money. Her family income is good, but they got behind on the bills. It's no fault of their own because Hydro didn't send them the bills and finally just gave them a whopper, and they just couldn't catch up. And that's, that's, that's why the story really resonated with people.
1: How angry were you when you left there and, and had to go back and file this report after you gained all this information from Carol?
0: No, oh, I was almost apoplectic. I was, I was, I was beside myself. And when I, I shared the story with my colleagues, they are like, holy smokes, and we just decided, okay, we're going to run this on Global Toronto, and we're going to run this on Global National, and we're going we're to put it across all of our platforms, and we're going to take this directly to Hydro One, and we're going, to, we're going to get in their face, and we're going to say, what is wrong with you? And we, we gave it to them, and uh, we gave them the story. We, should, we presented it to them, and they sort of looked at us and said, oh, dear, um, you know what? That doesn't sound right. Uh, give us her number, which we didn't, and let us talk to her. So we took their number down, and we had Carol call them the next day.
1: Carol, I want to bring you into the conversation here as well. And before we get to what happened with that conversation that you had with Hydro One, maybe you could set the scene as 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 Mike did with his report on on Global that we saw about exactly how you got into this circumstance. as As Mike's already indicated, uh, you you both work, you and your husband both work. Uh, you have jobs, you make pretty decent money. But you underscore I think the real concern and the real problem that we're seeing here in the province of Ontario. you were playing by the rules, you did all the programs that Hydro told you to do and everything else and and still found yourself getting snowed under by these bills.
4: Yes, it was um, we were part of the billing error problem that Hydro experienced about two years ago, and we didn't get a bill for about four or five months, and so I was my husband and I were putting money into our hydro account, thinking that we were covering, you know, what we should be. And then in September of 2015, we got a huge bill for uh, $12,000. Yeah. And and
1: by the way, that's an important element to this. It's not as if you weren't getting bills and just thought, oh, I guess we've got a holiday here. You, you were planning, you were putting money away for this. Yes, we in were. In anticipation of what you thought the bills were going to be.
4: That's right. That's right. And so when we got this bill, I called Hydro and said, you know, there's no way we can pay it. So they set us up with a payment plan, which we followed. And then we got a call a week later saying, you have to pay this bill. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> we, we already set up a payment plan. Oh, it wasn't recorded. I said, okay. So we set up another one. But every time we set one up, it, the, the, the amount became higher and higher and higher because they could do it over fewer months. So by the time um, the end of April rolled around, uh, 2016, we were up to close to $900 just in arrears payment.
1: But you were chipping oh. away. I, I, and again, yeah. I, I want people to understand, this is not as if you said we can't do this and you refused to pay. You were oh, trying no, no. to pay.
4: Oh, we were. We were trying to pay, and we were, we were paying at the expense of everything else. So with our current hydro bills, because we're in rural Ontario, um, and it was wintertime, we were paying paying anywhere between $1,800 to $2,000 a month.
1: What's that do to your household expense account? I mean, you've got, I'm assuming, a mortgage. You've got other bills to pay, other utility bills.
4: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we had to rob Peter to pay Paul. Um, That's what it came down to. And then when um you know the end of the end of april rolled around and we were about my husband's pay went in the following morning at 12 a.m and i called hydro and said you know it's not going to come in until you know 12 a.m can i pay it then and they said no our computers will recognize it as being late and that's a default on the payment plan you have to pay the whole amount
1: because of a, a couple of hours
4: yes
0: yeah, does that yeah. sound reasonable bill
1: no Mike this is this is this is the the epitome of of corporate ignorance isn't it Mike I mean that simply say no that our computer program says this and and you know we don't we we have no capacity to 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 have any modification on this I mean that's that, that's that's beyond the pale Mike
0: you know the the, the term the, the name the term jackals comes to mind yeah I mean it really does I mean not to take to take sides or to point fingers but that's, I mean, there is nothing that they did wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. Generally, if, if you these if you stories people people like, yeah, I just didn't pay, and I got behind, you're like, okay, you know, it's, it's your fault, partly your fault. But they didn't do anything wrong, and they found themselves in this predicament. That's just, and, and that is the essence of the story, the fact that there are so many Ontarians, just like Carol and her family.
1: Thousands, thousands, Mike. Thousands, as you mentioned thousands. on your report.
0: They're looking, they're looking at 1,400. They've now said, because of the report that we did with Carol, they're looking at 1,400 individual cases, and they're going to see whether or not they were unreasonable and that, if they, that they had made mistakes, as they told us that they did with Carol. That's, un, that's unbelievable.
1: But, Mike, as, as Carol's t- telling her story here, I mean, you, 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 because you alluded to this in your report on Global, that this is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you know, the 1,400 that they say they're going to review right now, that doesn't even come close to covering the number of people that are in a similar predicament to Carol.
0: Well, you know, they cut off 60,000 people last year. Yeah, 60,000 people got cut off last year, whether or not it was for, like, a, a short time or not. That's 60,000 people. There's a lot of people who are, who are struggling.
1: So, Carol, as a result of this, you, you've you lost power. You, you have nothing. You, you're living in a house. You've got kids. Uh, four kids, is it? Yes, it is. And your husband and yourself. What did you do? How did, how did you live? How did you exist without power?
4: Uh, it was very difficult because we are on well water, so we lost access to water as well.
1: Oh, jeez.
4: So um, we looked into having water delivered, and of course, that was just there was no way. It was close to 300 between $300 and $400 a month that it would cost for water. And we had a generator, so we started up the generator and ran the fridge and, you know, the Wi-Fi and the TV for the kids and a light at night. Um, but but on know, that
1: point, you you know, if you walking around the house at night, you were using flashlights.
4: Oh, yeah. We were using flashlights and little, you know, dollar store LED lights. And that's what we... Got used to. There was no water in the taps, of course. So my husband ended up bringing water home every day from Toronto, and we would boil water for the kids so they could have uh, showers. And my husband and I would wash in, in a bucket in the bathtub. And um, you know that water was our lifeline, you know, for cooking and cleaning and and staying clean. Um, this is a middle-class but, family living like this in Ontario. This is
1: also. Mike. Mike, this, this is third-world living yeah. conditions that you're describing. I mean, let's be I've, clear I've about been,
0: this. I've been to Afghanistan. I've been to Haiti, and that's the way they live there. They don't live like that here. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to do things
4: right.
1: And and as Mike alluded to, the neighbors actually called Children's Aid on you because they yes, they, they, they feel did. the kids were not being cared for properly.
4: That's right. That's right, which was absolutely devastating and horrifying for us because, you know, our children are our world and we've always put them first and always, always will put them first. And we were doing everything we could to keep them as comfortable as possible. I was trying to frame the whole situation as sort of an an adventure. Um, You know, this is how they used to do it and, and, you know, we can do it this way and isn't that interesting and all that sort of thing. Um, And then this happened. And it was just—you've got to be kidding me!
1: So you're putting on a brave face for the kids. They go yes. to bed at night. I mean, th- th- at some point, you—this th- has got to have an impact on you. And, and, and you know, the, the pressure that you and your husband are feeling right now.
4: Yeah, it—it it, it did. It's—it's um, it's very, very stressful. And I would, you know, wait till the kids. I knew they were asleep, and I'd start to cry um, because I thought, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? And how are we ever going to get out of this? because there was just, you know, there's nothing else that we could do at that point. My husband was working as much overtime as he could, but that was paying for the, to run the generator.
1: Well, exactly. Um, and the other bills that needed to be paid.
4: It, well, exactly. Exactly. And we had to play catch-up as well, because, you know, we were behind on our other bills. So we were not only trying to keep the generator going, which was close to uh, $900 a month. We had to have the propane, which was $100 a month to cook. And to heat water with, but we also had to catch up on our our bills that we had let we had to let fall behind to keep up with hydro,
1: and and walking around with flashlights at night. This is it's disgusting. So, Mike, you you got in touch with Hydro One, and apparently there's a new executive uh, VP there, and is is that the gentleman yeah. you talked to, Mister Pouliers?
0: Well, you know, it, it is important to note, and uh, you know, Hydro One is is part kind of the big bad guy in this one, but they're also uh, the ones who kind of made it right. Um, this. Um, uh Ferio Pugliese is a new VP that they have there. And uh, he's decided, he's only been there for about a year, and he's decided he wants to bring a little bit more humanity back to Hydro One. Good for him. And he, um, and so we spoke to him, and he was, he was, to give him credit, it wasn't, when we're calling and saying, this is what we want to talk to you about, most people actually duck you, and they say, no, we don't. <laughs> They'll send you a comment because they don't want to put their face on TV associated with a story like this. They, they actually went and stood in front of the cameras and spoke to us, and they said, yeah, this is something, this does not seem right, we're going to take a look at it. Give them credit for that. And then the next day they called, uh, I mean, we set up that conversation with, uh, with Carol, and um, I guess
4: he, he spoke directly with Carol, and
0: she can tell you exactly what he said.
1: What was that phone call like, Carol?
4: Um, I called him, and he wasn't in the office, so I left a message with um, uh, um, another lady there. He called me back within about an hour from Alberta, and I told him what happened, and he was very apologetic, and he kept saying, I'm sorry what for what your family has been going through, um, and he asked for a bit of the background of how we got into this situation, and I told him, and he, he apologized over and over again, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and he asked that I leave it with him for about, a, you know, until the next day, and I said, that's fine. And that was that. Um, he was very he was very pleasant to deal with, and but he was also very apologetic, which surprised me, because people out here are scared of Hydro One.
1: No kidding. <laughs> quite
4: honestly, they're quite they're quite you know nervous when they see Hydro One around.
1: Um, yeah, because so, they could be next.
4: Yeah, exactly, and. Um, So then about an hour and a half later, I got a call from a a gentleman by the name of Imran who said that he was a director of, uh, I don't know what, I'm sorry, but I I, I just didn't know who he was really. And he said that uh, we are going to reconnect you, at at which point I burst into tears. And he said, turn off your breaker, we'll be there, Uh, we'll be there tonight. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I got off the phone, and I was just, you know, bawling my eyes out. My kids thought someone had died, <laughs> <laughs> and and so we did what he said. Um, and I had to go take the kids out, and we came home, and my husband was home, and the kids just went nuts. They 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 looked, and they did a double take. The power
1: they- was back on by the time you I got was back.
4: Back on, yeah.
1: For the first time in what? Almost six months.
4: Almost six months. <sighs> Almost six months, and it was just the most incredible thing. It really. And, was. and Carol,
0: please tell us, uh, tell Bill about uh, what life was like suddenly with power. The sort of the changes you had to, how you how used to not having power you had become.
4: Um, it was strange. The kids kept sort of turning a, a light switch on and sort of going, "Wow, you know, there's a light." <laughs> Um, but you know, old habits die hard and the kids still come downstairs with flashlights and I say, you know, there's a light switch right there and you can turn that on if you need to. It's
1: a, it's a learned behavior for them, it's unfortunately. A learned
4: behavior. I still take water bottles into the bathroom thinking there's no water to brush my teeth. Um, I had my first hot shower that night in five months. And I didn't, you know, it was just amazing to, to me that there was hot water coming out of the, the shower head. And, you know, I still forget. I hope you
1: took water. a long one.
4: I did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did. I didn't want to get out, I have to say.
4: The kids then, are laughing then you at me. thought
0: about the hydro bills, right?
4: Yeah, and then we thought about the hydro bills, and I thought, you know, I can't take a long shower. Um, we're very careful about turning everything off. Every time I see something on, I think about the hydro. Um, wheels turning, and um, yeah, so it's sort of a it's a bittersweet it's a bittersweet victory, I guess, a bittersweet thing.
1: What about going forward? Have you had any discussion with the with these people yet about how they're going to reconcile this?
4: I am waiting. I've put a call in. I returned a call. I haven't heard from the gentleman yet. Um, hoping that we can come up with a payment plan that we can afford. We certainly can't afford what we were doing. Um, and so I'm I'm waiting still to hear back from them on that.
0: And that's that's an important element of it too. Sure
4: uh,
1: because, is.
0: Because um, she said that you know she's not ducking what she owes. She's saying yes, we're going to pay it. You know, I'm suggesting that if they come back at her with like insane uh, interest bills, that we'll be back on Hyder on one's door, um, asking them what they're doing. Uh, but they want to pay it. And also global viewers actually donated a bunch of money to her um to help her get on that's that's on wonderful
1: TV. side of the story
0: yeah but you know what's even more wonderful what carol said to me yesterday she said you know what i'm going to pay him back and i said don't pay him back pay it forward and she thought that was a wonderful idea so i and i have no doubt she's going to do it I have yeah no doubt she's absolutely gonna do it. she's a wonderful person. the bill kelly
4: show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml